0: Last things first. Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Tom Shalou can be seen on Fox News, where he hosted the late, late-night comedy panel show Red Eye, and still appears regularly in other hours, offering his homespun comedic values to the day's news. Shalou has been featured on Comedy Central's Broad City, and he can be seen and heard from time to time on The Tonight Show Starring Jimmy Fallon as a member of Fallon's celebrity barbershop quartet, The Ragtime Gals. Shalou's first book? Mean Dads for a Better America: The Generous Rewards of an Old Fashioned Childhood is out now. In it, Tom recalls a time when parents generally ruled over their children while still giving them plenty of space outside without technology to roam wild. Tom tells me all about that and much more. So let's get to it.
1: I mean, he he lost but, out on that one.
0: But how do you? But do you, how do you tell someone that? was homeless and then you gave them this national
1: jingle commercial and then you tell them that's it yeah it's like that movie with uh, robin williams and uh, robert de niro remember awakenings awakenings. you know yeah. you, you they were uh mentally impaired and then they were genius and then they s- slowly slid back into the the mm. old unawakening it's like flowers for algernon yep yeah mm. it's amazing yeah sad mm. At least
0: your story isn't sad, Tom. <laughs> no. Tom lose here, last things first. Uh let me be the first to wish you a happy Father's Day. Thank you. It's since, coming up. Since it's coming up and this
1: one is extra special for you since you have a new book, your first book. Do you think they the publisher planned that? Yes. Th- for the Father's Day? Yes. They're brilliant because they were like we want to release it June 6th and I was like I got to finish the book but you know cuz I had to finish it by Christmas. And then uh and then I realized their whole operation—it was all about Father's Day, which is right. great because I think we're going to sell a lot of books right. Father's Day. Yeah, <laughs> they're mean, smart. They're smarter than me. Mean dads for a better America. Yeah, it's fantastic. So they're like,
0: "Oh, people will go into the bookstore or be on Amazon looking for a last-minute Father's Day gift," and go,
1: "That's it. This I'm is gonna, it." You know what I'm going to do? I've I'm seen gonna, that Tom Tom Shalou. Isn't
0: that that guy from Red Eye?
1: Yeah, that's it. The the Red Eye people, and then the. But you know, the the key will be if strangers, if strangers pull it off the shelf and they say. Mean dads. Hmm, my dad was mean, but I love the guy. And then they said, this book is for me. That's what yeah. I'm hoping, you know?
0: Uh, do, you, do you think your childhood, you know, you grew up in Norwood. Norwood, Massachusetts. Uh, next door to Canton, which is where Bill Burr grew up.
1: Bill Burr was Canton. Canton. I knew he was Boston, but I didn't know. And his,
0: and his, you know, his Netflix show, F is for Family, is all about kind of his mean dad. Yeah. Do, <laughs> I didn't see it. I got to check it out. Do I mean, you, he's uh, the best. When
1: you're, um, When your dad found out... What, what did your dad do for a living? My dad was in computers. Okay. And, you know, you can imagine. This was like the 60s and 70s. He was in computers, which was uh, strange because it was the pre-computer era, you know? So he was in the IBM, the mainframes. Where the computer took up a whole room. Yes, and he did. We used to go to his office. Whenever, he he would change jobs all the time because, you know, he'd spend a year or two and they'd be like, ah, the hell with you people. And he'd <laughs> go to the next, you know, he'd move on to the next mm-hmm. one. But... He had, his office was always in the basement and it was always covered with computers. It looked like Star Trek. So we would, he watched Star Trek. That was one of the shows that, it, you know, he would, he liked and he would let us it watch. had computers. It. Yeah. <laughs> and it had the, it, his office looked to me like the, the, uh, the Enterprise. Oh, the bridge? Or yeah. Scotty's yeah, the, engineering room. Yeah. A little both. Cause he okay. had a back, cause w- when you went behind the mainframes, it was all the wires and everything. And they had the printers with the double uh, sided paper mm. on it. And uh, there's a, there was a chapter in the book that got cut out. Uh, You know, my uh, Carrie Thornton was my incisive editor. She would (laughs) slice and dice and the thing was there was just a story about going to work with my dad Mm -hmm. and We we we, it was called the first computer game because we went in and he he took our names down It was me and my friend Johnny Hines and he wrote down our names and then he said oh pick a punch and I said "Uh, uh, uppercut and he said left and Johnny said left hook and he entered in all the information into his IBM computer OK. Mm-hmm. And then he said, OK, go over there by the printer. And we went over. We, we waited for the printer to print out a boxing match line by line. It was like, día, 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 día. <laughs> it's like Johnny Hines. We're here at Madison Square Garden with Tom Shalhoub and the red trunks and Johnny Hines. And so they went, uh, they it went through a whole boxing match and we watched it type out. And it was so exciting. Like this was the first video game, you know? Right. And we ripped it off, we brought it to school and we showed everybody and it was so exciting. My <laughs> whole fourth, fourth grade class was like, this is the, the future, you know? Um, and I guess, you know, it wasn't as exciting enough for the book, but <laughs> it, was like, I, it was, that was the- it didn't translate. Probably. It didn't, tra- but the thing was, it was it was the excitement of the modern era. You know, like my friends would come to work with with me at my dad's place and he was seen as the cutting edge, you know? Uh, and then he 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 worked in computers all the way up until like the 80s. Just when the you know, just when Steve Jobs and right. uh, and and uh, Bill Gates were taken on, my dad was like, ah, there's nothing. My dad me. has a similar story. <laughs> they moved on. <laughs>
0: he moved into insurance. Yeah, close. I mean,
1: exactly. Um, did your dad want you to get into computers? or uh, I think he uh, you know he didn't know what to he, he, he didn't know what was going on. by the time I got to high school right. I was like really I, I was like a total weirdo. you know because I, I grew up very you know traditional conservative, but then the 80s came mm-hmm. and you know I was into like punk rock and the B52s and David Bowie, and I was dyeing my hair orange. but my dad kind of took it in stride. He didn't uh, you know he he never he never got on my case about college. He was pretty laid back. So when you picked Emerson, Yeah. Did he know that? I don't think he was thrilled about Emerson. (laughs) This artsy-fartsy college. Yeah, but what's he going to do? You know, at some point, it was like, I was the fourth of five kids, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, my brother's off at Cornell, and my sister was, uh, you know, at at Northeastern. She was becoming a physical therapist. Um, I had another sister at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. So we all kind of went our own way. Okay. And even though, because I grew up very traditional, and a lot of people, they read the stories early in the book. And we had a very strict upbringing, you know? Right. And that's what the, the mean dads, well, we were afraid of my dad. Me and my brother were afraid to talk back to the guy. We were afraid to speak up to him. We sat in silence in the car, you well, know? Well,
0: that's why there's kind of like a Norman Rockwell
1: Yes, it was. Feeling. I had a great, I mean, my childhood was, I, I, I make the case in the book that I had the perfect world. It was the, all the benefits of the old school, but we grew up in the 70s. We were listening to Paul McCartney and Wings, and we were being raised by, you know, fathers know Father Knows Best It was like the old world and the new world, and it was it was the promise of the future. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I I know I've described you in print before as like the more conservative, traditional version of Garrison Keeler with Lake Wobegon. (laughs) Exactly. Except you're in Norwood with kind of like more of a Norman Rockwell.
1: Yeah. in Norwood. Yeah, instead yeah, of Lake Wilbigan and Liberal. Well, I think a lot of people like they they would tune into Garrison Keillor. Like, oh, this is great stuff. You know, a lot of conservatives they mm-hmm. they, they first they'd be charmed by him, and then they were like, wait a minute, this guy's a real Manhattan. How do you do? Isn't he? <laughs> so maybe I am. Maybe I'm the you know. Maybe I can tap into that Garrison that's Keillor for the hey Red State Garrison Keillor. How's right. that? Oh, that's a good. That's in my next title. Boom. Nailed it. Red State Keillor. <laughs>
0: Now, the first time I saw you perform live was as part of an Emerson College alumni really? talent show. It was one of the years of the Boston Comedy Festival. Yep. They had a big to-do at the Majestic Theater in Oh, so you Boston. were in Boston? Yeah, Holy I was, mo, that I was, was a re- great show. I was a reporter at the Boston Herald at the time. Oh, and, my gosh. And there were all these Emerson grads who were in comedy, from Dennis Leary,
1: Bill Burr. Yep. Uh, Eddie Brill was part of it. Yep. Um, he showed up. Didn't Eddie Brill show up like he flew in? Yeah, yeah. Because he was doing Letterman? Let me tell you about that show. I was obviously tickled to be put on the show. Eddie called me and said, can you do the show? I said, absolutely. So I went home, and a lot of people didn't even know I went to Emerson because I only went for three semesters. Right. But I get there, and it's Bill Burr and all the, you know, and Leary and all the people and everything. And then I'm doing stand-up. They bring me out on stage because I'm early in the show. You know, I'm before everybody. Right, because you were more the the younger slash lesser known of yes. all the alums. I think me and Jen Kirkman were the at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. Jen was on that, right? I don't know if she was or not. Oh, okay. So... Uh, but maybe there was, I've only done two of those big shows, but okay. th- that was, a, but I walk onto the stage and I'm doing my stand up and it's going well. Cause it's a bunch of parents and friends of Emerson and everything like that. And you're in a big theater. And I remember thinking, man, this is really, this is like, I mean, I'm firing on all cylinders here. And then I look over in the wings and um, Stephen Wright is standing there <laughs> just with the, you know, this, the front of his forehead is lit from the, the lights. And I can mm-hmm. just see his, the, the edge of his <laughs> nose and he's peeking out and Stephen Wright's watching my set. And I look over and it was like, I, I, I mean, I almost stopped my set right there. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, Stephen Wright's you know, <laughs> taking in my set and he's smiling. It was the best.
0: Did you know when you went to Emerson that that comedy was going to be your future? Is Did you pick that on that basis?
1: or I discovered it there. I did, you know, and there's a, there's a chapter in the book about my first stand-up, which was in high school. I was hosting the high school gong show. And there's a whole controversy around the, oh. the gong show. I mean, you know, I, I, I told a joke that was kind of rated. It was, it was let's say it was PG-13. Oh, wow. I worked blue back then. I was a lot dirtier <laughs> in high school than I was then. I, I unwittingly stole a Rodney Dangerfield joke. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to save it for the book because sure. they'll save the punchline. I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert. But I unwittingly stole a joke from a, uh, a well-known comic, mm-hmm. Rodney Dangerfield. And... Uh, And I told it, I didn't understand the joke. Well, they'll see if, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun the way it turns out. But anyway, I caused controversy at my high school and all of a sudden I was this edgy dude. (laughs) I was an edgy comic all of a sudden. And then I thought, man, maybe this is kind of interesting. And I went off to uh, Nick's comedy stop to take it all in to see, hey, let's see some stand up comedy. Mm -hmm. And I went there and it was Don Gavin, Richie Seisler, you know, all those guys. Old school Boston comics. Yeah. And they were so hard edged you know it was so aggressive and so like they were they were the Boston comics, and I was like, Oh, this isn't my scene, you know because I was like <laughs> that intimidated more than inspired you know? well I thought i can't this is I can't play in this in this field mm-hmm. it, like it was a different sport to me, you know it it was like you know uh the it was a different game. I grew up with Bob Newhart. And Bill Cosby, obviously, because those were the albums that, you know, that they had at the library. Right. They didn't, you know, I didn't know. Uh, right. You probably couldn't check out George Carlin at didn't the Didn't know library. Carlin. Didn't know him. I mean, you know, maybe like from TV, mm-hmm. th- he was a guy that might have been on laugh or something that I had seen. But we didn't know of, of what was going on with, with uh, Pryor and Carlin and stuff like that because it was, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be allowed. You know, taboo. We, taboo, right. And when I was in seventh grade, even, uh, Steve Martin was the biggest thing going but we couldn't get his albums because they had a parental warning on them. So they wouldn't have been allowed in our house, you know? So I I was thinking Bob Newhart, you know? So I thought, I'll go to a comedy club. In the, It was in the theater district in Boston, in the old, what they call the Combat Zone, you right? Know? And I went in it's there. Now, it's now uh, very developed now. It's ve- I mean, it's unbelievable. They still yeah. had the Pussycat Theater back then, <laughs> you know? But I went in and I go into Nick's comedy stuff and it was like something out of uh, Casino, you know? Uh, the uh, Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. It was like, it looked like a, you know, CD Vegas, uh, you know, showroom and, and, uh, the comics are all really dirty and everyone's drunk. And, you know, it's, it was just outrageous. I thought I was going to see guys with blue blazers doing, uh, you know, intellectual material, you know, uh, like a la Bob Newhart. And so I thought, okay, now stand-ups. Or even fun. Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Yeah. I no I mean, Yeah. I, whatever routines I had seen, we watched Flip Wilson on TV, mm-hmm. but it was like uh, monologues, you know, right. they, they were, uh, they were a lot more gentle. It was like Dick Cavett, you know? And so I thought, okay, stand-up's not for me. It's just a different scene. Then I went to Emerson, and people were doing stand-up there. Right, they actually had comedy... The comedy nights. Nights yeah, and they classes the, and they called sketch it the, groups uh, and... The, the, the green room. There was a green room comedy or something. The, in the basement of Charlesgate Gate East, the, uh, the, the hotel that they had as a dorm, they would do their uh, comedy nights once a week. And David Cross w- was on it, and who else was there? There were, uh, you know, Leary was a teacher there, at Emerson. He taught he taught comedy writing. Did and, you take his class? Yeah, and he was the advisor for Emerson Comedy Workshop. So you know, we we met Which with he him. he and Eddie time. Brill founded. Yes, they founded. And of course, I didn't know Eddie at that time. He was already because this was the he the was already was like a 80s, road comic. 85, yeah. 86, Yeah. What was Dennis Leary like as a teacher? He was, you know, had to punch. You got to punch it, punchy. It. You know, like again, it was the. He, everything had to punch. Everything had to have that hard edge. He was really into word sounds. You know what I mean? Because like you remember him. He was, yeah, Pickle. yeah. And it was, it, his act was very, it, it had that Boston energy. He mm-hmm. was a little different. You know what I mean? He had, that, he had his own thing, but it was definitely like rock and roll comedy. Was you know? it before he started doing his MTV? It was before that, yeah. Because yeah. it was, that, I couldn't believe it when our teacher, <laughs> our Emerson teacher, you know, there was this long hair teacher. We used to call him Tom Petty because he had the long hair. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the blonde hair. And we were like, oh, our teacher, Tom Betty And uh, and then uh, I spent some time at UMass Boston. And mm-hmm. I remember uh, Dennis Leary was booked to do a nooner there. You know, a nooner when they come in and they perform in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. That sounds and horrible. It was horrible. And it was like, you know, he's in a lunchroom. People are eating their their, uh, their hot lunches, <laughs> you know, in the cafeteria. And he's doing stand-up. And I, and I remember thinking, like, wow, look what happened to my teacher. Like, you know, and this was, you know, this was about a year after he had been our faculty advisor at, at Emerson. And I thought like, wow, it's kind of rough out there. You know, he's mm-hmm. doing noontime gigs. And then like, you know, cut 18 months in the future. And he's a big star in England. And then he gets the MTV and he's a superstar. So, <laughs> um, so things like that were, it kind of rocked my world. Cause right. I was like, wait a minute. So this guy, David Cross was always, you know, he was, he, the, he was in um, This Is Pathetic. So we used to go see the comedy groups there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Workshop, he was in Pathetic. Um, there was a, the Swollen Monkey Showcase. Uh, there were three competing comedy groups. It was really, the the scene that's in New York now with UCB mm-hmm. and the pit and stuff like that, there was a little microcosm of that at Emerson. And it was a comedy school, essentially. So you had people going there. There was a guy I knew, Don Wood, who was a comedian. I mean, he was like, oh, I came here to be a comedian, you know, and he he wanted to, to do stand-up. Anthony Clark was in This Is Pathetic, the group. So right. he was the stand-up star of Emerson. When I was a freshman, he would show up and just destroy every time he was like that was his tv show was based on the emerson experience a little bit right exactly the uh, boston common which is amazing because they they basically rebuilt the the emerson um student union Mm -hmm. for the set of his show you know but he was i mean the level to to which tony clark was they called him tony clark in Mm -hmm. in those days tony was the star of emerson i mean he was like a such a celebrity and he was so good he was he had such a great act and uh and he was he used to say look i'm gonna do I want to do this. And then, you know, he would tell us what his plan was. I want to, uh, you know, do stand up here. And then I want to get on at um, Stitches and, you know, catch a rising star in these clubs in Boston. And then I want to do The Tonight Show. And then I want to go get a sitcom. Like he had the whole plan out and he did all those things. And did so, you, did you have a plan? No. At that point, I was like, okay, you're watching other people's plans and you're like, oh, maybe I could do this. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I could, uh, maybe there there is a way to make a career out of this. Maybe we could, I could kind of be my own guy because uh you know anthony clark was he had his own thing right he had this kind of southern charm thing and then david cross was just out there he was really weird and inaccessible to most people and then i used to go see him at at catch a rising star and he'd be going up monday night he would try things out that would bomb he didn't care you know what i mean he'd get up there and just Work on some character or something, mm-hmm. and the audience would be dumbfounded. Like, what is this guy doing? And I'm like, now this guy's fearless. You know, what's his plan? I didn't. Know, I didn't get it. I didn't get his plan. I didn't know what he was doing, but he had a. He had his own thing. Right. And of course, that, you know, took a little longer for him. But then, you know, it it all happened for him too. So it was like, I, I kind of modeled these type of guys, and uh, and I got out of Boston because again, the scene was not. It, it was. It was. I was not getting up there you know i'd get up monday nights at catch do the the uh, open mic night first time i went up was John, jonathan groff who okay. later became the uh, head writer for conan jonathan groff was hosting and uh i went up and did did stand up and uh maron was on that show maron closed that show you know he came in as kind of like the the, <laughs> the the old pro right and to close up the showcase yeah and i remember him sitting up there and he sat on the stool you know and he had yeah. this kind of like real 60s energy like uh <laughs> Um, you know, like a, like a, uh, you know, who is it? Who am I thinking of? Who's the guy who used to have the newspaper? Oh, um. You know, he used to get up on stage with the, uh, with the paper. I'm blanking on his name. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and he had another, you know, he had his thing. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be winging it. I was like, who's this guy? He, you know, he seems quite unprepared. Mort Mort-Sall. Mortsall, yeah. <laughs> he had a Mort energy energy. Like, mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, now that's something, that's another thing here. Like, he, uh. He's kind of just—he's uh, keeping it real, you know. He's like, you know, and and he's sitting on a stool, and he's—he, it was like jazz comedy, you know. Uh, and I was like, you know, maybe maybe there's a place for me. But I got out of Boston, came to New York. I met Gaff again at an open mic night, and he but, had his thing. But but don't I remember from a previous interview, you ended up in Florida first? Yeah, that's right. You're right. I did Florida. I. I How did you end up down there? I went to you know because anything goes you're like any audition i'll go to it mm-hmm. so they had auditions you know stars of tomorrow like a real big audition the audition was in boston or? the audition was in boston at mm-hmm. like the park plaza hotel or something. <laughs> Pac Plaza. yeah and it said uh looking for um you know stars you know it was some corny thing mm-hmm. you know looking for the you know reach for the stars and they were looking for celebrity lookalikes and they were like marilyn monroe wc fields bring your best character it was for universal studios in florida so I thought, well, who's my character? You yeah, know, so is... I did a pretty good Jimmy Stewart. You know, oh. I kind of people used to say I looked like him. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the old-fashioned clothes and everything, and uh, and people would say, "Hey, Jimmy Stewart! Doggone it, you should!" And you know, and I would do the Mary, Mary. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to do Jimmy Stewart. At mm-hmm. the very least, I'll get on the news because you know they have all the local news crews out there. So I went to the audition. Big long line of people mm-hmm. in the hotel lobby, and I. I waited till I got pretty close, and then there was a woman behind me, and I said, "Hey, do you want to get in front of me?" So she, I said, "You know, she was doing. She was actually doing uh, an old character like um, uh, Catherine Hepburn or something mm-hmm. like that." And I said, "Do you mind? Why don't you stand in front of me, and then I'll and then I'll cut you in line." It's a little. It, uh, you know, thing I want to do. So mm-hmm. she got in front of me, and then they opened the door and they said, "Next!" And I ran around her and I mm-hmm. charged in and said, "You sit around here and you spin your web." You know, and I did that <laughs> Jimmy Stewart scene with Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter, Potterville. Yeah, yeah and uh, and then I uh, and then I ran out of the place. Mary, dog, got it. And I went running out. You know, so it caused a big thing, and mm-hmm. it got on the news. Like my stupid <laughs> stunt, got me on channel five so
0: you you finally had a plan
1: yeah i know (laughs) that was your plan guerrilla tactics (laughs) guerrilla tactics so what did they have you do at universal studios they brought me down there and Mm -hmm. they said you're going to be jimmy stewart and then they had this idea oh you know what we're going to do we'll have harvey the rabbit walk around with you Mm -hmm. because people love big fuzzy rabbits you know costume character they proposed the idea to jimmy stewart who was very much still here on the planet right you know because it's 1990 and he was like no (laughs) no, you're not going to do that. And his manager, I remember he was with Mort Viner uh, at ICM, like Mm -hmm. the old school, Mort Viner. And Mort Viner uh, was like, Mr. Stewart wants nothing to do with this, you know? And so they ordered, like, they sent a letter, cease and desist. And I was already in Florida. They had flown me down there, and they said they were going to give me a job. So (laughs) they said, stand by. And Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, so I'm, I'm hanging around for a couple of days. And then they called me and said, we want you to host a show. Uh, like a stand-up comic role, okay. I said, "Oh, great, I can do that." Yeah. So I came in and they showed me what I, where I was going to be working, the horror makeup show, the Phantom of the Opera horror makeup show. And I I walk to the back to the trailer and I go in there, and there's a suit that's perfectly my size, just sitting over there, and it says Tom Shallow on it in tape. I said, "Oh, great." And then I look around. I'm like, "Hey, everybody!" Hey, and there's guys there, and they're like, "Hey, man," kind of looking at me like you know they had dour expressions on their face, like Uh-oh. I didn't seem like I was welcome, you know. And there was, there was, because uh, there was other people in the show. There was hosts and then there was the, uh, the, 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 the makeup the artist character. Okay. Yeah. Asif Manvi was one of the guys. Oh, wow. Yeah. Asif was there in his Hawaiian shirt. So mm-hmm. the the two characters, the host and the makeup artist. And Asif was playing one of the makeup artists because, you know, they go on and off on your shifts. So the guys are kind of looking at me funny and, you know, I feel a little weird. There's like a weird energy in the air. And I come to find out the one of the hosts had died. He just drove off a bridge. You know, he was drunk driving. He drove off a bridge into the water and and like died. So and that's how the gig opened. He up. was six feet tall, weighed about one hundred and sixty-five pounds. <laughs> oh, <goodness>. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> I took over <laughs> for that's, this guy. I mean, it's not divine, funny. That's divine intervention of the hellish order. I mean, it's really something. I mean, I hate to laugh. It's there was a, tra- a, a tragedy happened. Right. But, I mean, I've told this story with Asif before. And uh, so Asif was like, oh, whoa, who's this guy? Pretty grim. So I didn't, they didn't immediately tell me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I found out slowly because somebody was wearing a black armband and they oh. were, you know, sad and everything. So anyway, that's when, that was my first job. I fit the suit. Mm-hmm. I fit the suit. It's like Johnny Bravo. From, how, how long did you hold that gig? uh, we did it for a year. We, we worked for a year and there was some, you know, there were some people down there, there was good actors. It's just a, we were making twelve ninety an hour with benefits, you know, dental and, and health benefits. Working In the late eighties, early nineties? Yeah. Early nineties. Right. You it was, said 1990. It was around the I remember the Gulf War broke out. Oh. I remember when the, the first Gulf War, uh, happened. Mm-hmm. And so it was right around that time. So Asif and I moved to New York together. We said, we're going to break into this show business. Did you get an apartment together too? Or? No. He moved <laughs> to Queens right around uh, Jackson, Vernon Jackson area. Mm-hmm. And I moved in with my sister. She had an apartment in Queens okay. uh, in the Astoria area. All right. But uh, Wayne Brady worked da- down there as well. Wayne moved to L.A. So there was like the, the, a lot of people who were using this Universal Studios. This was one of their first jobs. As a springboard. In, in show business. Yeah. And some of them went to L.A., and me and Asif went to New York, um, and, uh, you know, there was uh, a guy, Michael Rayner, who was a, a juggler. Mm-hmm. He was another friend of mine. There, we all kind of had our, we were these young, ambitious guys, and we wanted to break into show business, but we were kind of, that was our 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 stopover in Central Florida. And uh, so, of course, you know what happened with Wayne. I mean, he was, he was super talented. He was probably like 19, very young guy, but we knew he was money in the bank. When really. you talk about Flip Wilson, he's like... Yeah. Same kind of. Exactly. Old school entertainer. Yeah. Um And uh, so that was, those were the, those were, those were good days. And we kind of met some very interesting people. I, I was just back down there. So I just go back down to Universal Studios mm-hmm. in Florida, which is now triple the size. And it's got Harry Potter World and everything like yeah. that. And I sing with Jimmy Fallon on the. Oh, set. right. NBC. He went down there. Right. He's got, for a week. Yeah. yeah he, the Jimmy because Fallon a Jimmy Fallon ride. The Jimmy Fallon ride. Is, and I used to sing a cappella down there. You know, they had uh, the uh, the old 50s diner, and Mm -hmm. I would sing, uh, sometimes sing, fill in with the a cappella group down there. And uh, so now there is a Jimmy Fallon ride, a ride through New York, uh, an interactive super adventure, and. The quartet, the ragtime gals, are in the ride, where holograms of us are in the ride. So when you... That's were, amazing. Yeah, when the ride rides into the subway, we're mm-hmm. singing, and you ride right by us as we sing. So now it's full circle. I'm at Universal in one of the acts. Did oh, you tell uh, Fallon that you had worked there? Yeah, yeah. Mind was blown. <laughs> and the, the, the horror makeup show is still there. I went to see it with my family.
0: Who was is, who is doing your
1: role? There's another guy. There was a guy, you know, I met the guy, mm-hmm. took a picture with him. I was like, dude, I did this job 17 years ago. Or wait... No, twenty seven. Wait a minute. I did it 27 years. 27 ago? Twenty seven years ago. Oh yes, and it's a, the script is different. Right. But it's it is this it is the show that Asif and I did. But I now mean, the suit has that guy's name in it. Yes, it's modified. <laughs> he fits the suit. Yeah. Uh, so really I know.
0: Yeah, you mentioned when you moved to New York, you became friends with Jim Gavigan. How how did you guys meet?
1: We met at Cold Waters. Do you remember that? No. Cold Waters. It was a, a one of the famous Gladys rooms. Gladys, you know Gladys's yeah. comedy room. She, before she had Gladys's comedy room at Hamburger Harry's, she would do – she was kind of a nomadic comedy presence. And she did a –
0: Yeah, I just heard of the Hamburger
1: She did a, a, uh, an open mic – no, it was like a contest show. Okay. You know, you'd come and everyone – it was kind of an open mic, but then they w- a winner would be declared. And I think there was a $100 prize. So I was at that, and uh, Jim came in, and he you know, he had his little cards and you know trying out his material – and he was like a weird guy, kind of talked softly. And I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. He's got a different... <laughs> I was always looking for someone who, you know, because I felt like I didn't have my voice. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a comic voice. And I was like, I had already lost the Boston accent because I was a bit into broadcasting and hosting right. and things like that. And and doing, I would do corporate videos. So as a showbiz guy, I kind of left the Boston persona. Sure. You know what I mean? Which is so big in comedy, you know, <laughs> having that Boston accent and, the, you know. It's but it like, limits your roles. It does, yeah. So I, I had been you know, I had my, my changed the way I I, I talked a little bit, you know, and I, and I, but I still didn't have my, my comic persona, I didn't know what it was, trying out jokes, you know, and I see Jim, and he's quiet, and it's like, okay, now, it's not my style, but, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, that's an interesting guy, you know, so seeing all these people, it was always like, uh, you know, they had some people had their voice from the get-go, you know what I mean? Like, they really had their, uh, they they were going to do what they were going to do, you know what I mean? Um, and I think Jim had that. Like, Jim had a sense of what was funny about him. And it, at the beginning, it wasn't really w- working because he was quiet and people were like, what's that guy doing? Like, they didn't know. And he, he, but he was like, but this is what I'm going to do. And he found a way to make that work. He never really changed it, but he, he just honed it and Mm -hmm. and made it more effective, you know? And me, I kind of was like, I I was still trying to be a little bit edgy. Cause that's what I thought I needed to do. So, you know, I would, I would get up there and, and, and try to be like the other comics a little bit. You know, I would swear, like everyone had to swear then you had to like to show credibility, you know, but it wasn't my New York edge. Yeah. Not it, quite the hardness
0: of the Boston, but still an aggressive...
1: Yeah, just to be, you know, you had to get up and take over. It was like an alpha thing. You had to get up and show them who's boss, you know? And, but it didn't sound right for me. And sometimes you see that. I used to... Uh, Sometimes you see a comic get up and they 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 try to swear and like be dirty like with the other, but it doesn't. It, they don't look like the kind of person who swears during the day. So <laughs> that if- was that was me when I was first
0: trying stand up back in Seattle <laughs> yeah. in 1997. I was still I was a full time newspaper reporter. I was still wearing bow ties to, for work. Yeah, and I decided to still wear my newspaper get up with the bow tie on stage. Yeah, and I was being filthy. And the manager, owner of the club came up to me and said, that's not you. Yeah. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Was that it? That was in Boston? No, <laughs> it was in Seattle at oh, the Comedy yeah. Underground. Oh, yeah. But um, but you... <laughs> when, so when did you get comfortable with your voice? Um, with who you, Who Tom
1: Shalhoub was going to be on stage? It was like 10 years. 10 years. Because... When I started out, I can remember going to do the duplex Star, the, you know, was it Stars of Tomorrow or something? There was some show we did that. That, <laughs> that it, was the Stars of Tomorrow? That was the Stars of Tomorrow, I think. Well, you, I, I remember when I moved to New York, uh, your name was always associated with Moonwork. That's right. That's when I, that was it. That's like what. That you was were the, the Moonwork moon guy. Talk about the voice. It was Moonwork. That, that's when I developed because I'm running around to the clubs. I'm trying to do an act that's like, I was trying to be cool. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you try to do, because you're trying to pick up girls, too, because you're a single guy, and you're like, what can I do to, you know, you don't want to look like a jerk, Mm -hmm. and you don't want to, you know, uh, you might be a little bit dorky, but you don't want to play into the dork. you want to play into the cool, because that's what you want to be, you know? But it wasn't, that wasn't really me, either. So I would get up, and I would say something, you know, try to say something edgy, and then they would kind of laugh. They would laugh at the setup, at the premise of it, and then it's like, oh, these guys think I'm some small-town Rube. You know what I mean? So they're laughing at... Uh, they're laughing at things that I didn't expect. And it's like, okay, so that's the way that. So you have to kind of turn into the skid, you know? And, and whatever they're <laughs> laughing at, you got to go with right. that. This um, is how the audience sees you. Yes. And, and Moonwork was a decidedly different kind of show. It wasn't a club show. It was not. It was like a, a theater show. It was, it was in a theater. Moonwork was a theater company. And uh, the Wolf Brothers ran it. And this guy, Mason Pettit, they were like the... Uh, Uh, And the Sherman, it was like the Sherman brothers, the Wolf brothers and Mason Pettit. But these guys put together this theater company and they wanted to do Shakespeare, like high, high class, you know, East Village Shakespeare. And then they decided to put on these fundraisers. So they would have these Saturday night shows and they would have their friends from the theater world, like Rusty McGee, the late, the the late, great Rusty McGee uh, perform. And he used to close every show. He'd get on the piano and he'd sing. And Mm -hmm. it was just a such a cool uh, variety show. And Rusty was like, Come on down, you got to do some sets down here. So I would come down, and Rusty did new stuff every time. Mm-hmm. He would get up on the piano and he would wing it, you know. And, you know, remember when I first started, I would see Marin and he would just kind of get up there and, and, Sit and on wing stool it. And, so I was like, Wait a minute, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it my way. So I would get up and start telling stories about, you know, my dad, my mean dad. I would tell stories about my hometown. And, uh, Every every week a different story. I would just let it go, long form. Something that I would used to hone down to three minutes of stand up. I would just let it go. You know, let it marinate. And I would do a twenty minute. <laughs> set. <eight>. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I would marinate, marin right? Eight. And I would and it wasn't brilliant, mm-hmm. but it was pretty good. And it was like, Oh, this guy's better doing this than the the than the tight five. Okay. So I was doing my jazz comedy all of a sudden and people were like liking my stories they were like hey and you know and then it got to be I would show up and people would you know they'd be waiting in line oh wait I have fans now like people not many I'm no superstar right but I remember having uh, Dimitri did the show one time Dimitri Martin and we're out at a diner a- afterwards um and uh we're <laughs> talking about the business and everything and he was having somewhat great success this was like you know the year 2000 or something like Mm -hmm. that in 99, 2000. And he was doing all sorts of stuff. And he was like, uh, and I said, yeah, I gotta, I gotta find a way to make this work. You know, uh, people, people like, you know, I got my moon work people, but there's nobody else likes me, you know? (laughs) And he was like, that doesn't matter. He was like, if, if you're anyone's favorite comic, you can be everyone's favorite comic. He was like, like if there's 30 people who come to see you and like, you're their favorite guy, there's gonna there's 30 more in, in another zip code you mm-hmm. know what I mean so that's he said you don't got to worry about it he's like you'll just uh you will develop uh, your fans just one at a time like that and I was like that's so true Dimitri like you don't have to keep uh, y- it was always this thing of like okay I got a thing here maybe I got a solo show now how do I how do I make it big you know right. what I mean how do I ex- how do I turn this into a special for TV you know and it's like uh oh you don't you just keep doing your thing and it's, it's like slow. It's, you got to build it slow. You know what I mean? And that's what he did. Cause he was a guy who, Dimitri was a guy who he, he would, they wouldn't even let him on onto the clubs. They wouldn't pass him at the strip. They wouldn't put him on because he was, they were like, ah, eh, he's too much like Stephen Wright. You know, he does right. that. He does that, um, you know, sardonic, uh, quiet humor mm-hmm. and he got no respect and he couldn't get festivals. <laughs> and so he built it up organically. He was like, it, 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 to the point of where they, you know, you can't say no to him because he's got fans.
0: Right. Now, when I profiled you on the Comics Comic website in 2011, you were still kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. You were doing, you were like doing shows at Joe's Pub or telling stories. Yes. Heavy in the storytelling world. And I remember asking you uh, where you saw yourself five years from then. Yes. Which would have been 2016.
1: Did I say right wing talk show host?
0: No. <laughs> No, no, you, you said you wanted to be more like Ricky Gervais, which is the exact opposite. Exact opposite.
1: Well, you know, you, said you, you
0: said you were looking for like what Ricky Gervais was doing as a role model. Yeah. And um, so obviously, I kind of still am though, really. So obviously, like, then you, a couple of years later, you made a CD, every, you made a comedy album every month for a year. Yeah. You start doing Ragtime Gals with Fallon.
1: Big, very big. Got
0: involved with Fox News. Like, all of this stuff was not in
1: your plan five years ago. I know. How did it was, How did that all happen? Well, look, the Ragtime Gals was always in a plan, because I always had this secret desire, ever since high school, mm-hmm. when I started singing Barbershop, I thought, this could go national. Like, we <laughs> Barbershop, we can make it big. I, I submitted, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a story in the book about how I, I submitted a, a, a tape of the quartet to Lauren Michaels. Back in 1985, I made a, <laughs> uh, a tape of our quartet, VHS tape, uh-huh. and I sent it not only to Lauren but every everyone on Square the staff. Or... Yeah, Scully Square. Yeah. And I sent, because I thought, you know, we could be a musical guest mm-hmm. on SNL. I thought it would be, you know, it would make sense, because I thought we sounded really good. Like, mm-hmm. I was very impressed by our sound <laughs> as quartet, and I love barbershop style music. Mm-hmm. Like, I love it. And so I thought, like... Why not? You know, like, Steve Martin was playing the banjo. Right. So I thought maybe it can be cool and, you know, weird. Throwback. Yeah. Kind of
0: retro. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that banjo with the arrow through the head, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the biggest thing going. So I thought maybe this can be something too, you know? And so off went the videotapes and my cover letters. And then I would cold call there. I would Mm -hmm. call into (laughs) follow-ups and I'd be like, "Lauren Michaels, please. Try to get him on the phone. Mm -hmm. And, How close did you get? Uh, nowhere. It got to a desk. Someone answered a phone. Okay, so you got to a person. Yeah. And then. They didn't uh, have computers on the phones back then. No, no. And they would, but they, but they, yeah, they had to answer. Right. So it would be like, and then before she hung up, I'd say, and what's your name? She'd say, I'm Joanne. And I'd say, okay, Joanne. And then she would hang up. And then I would c- call back again, and someone would, hello. And I'd be like, Joanne, it's Tom Shalhoub. You know, so like, I, I was just whatever aggressive tactics I could use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that, that kind of went nowhere. But I still had the love of, of barbershop, you know. Right. So then. When I was playing, you know, Luna Lounge and, and doing these other shows in, in New York, I would force guys like A.D. Miles to sing with me. And they loved it because it sounds great. I mean, right. when you put four <laughs> voices together, it's undeniable. Part, part harmony, It's yeah. really great. So they would be like, this sounds great. Let's get up on stage. So we would get up and do, a, you know, a song mm-hmm. and just wow the crowd. And people would be like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen at a comedy club, you know. Again, it was like just out of the love of Barbershop. Right. But I thought we can do something with this, you know. So we pitched a show to Comedy Central and they liked it a barber the crime solving barbershop quartet me and miles we were going to write you know the all mm-hmm. the episodes and it was going to it was going to be a it was going to be it just b- been part of a comedy central series yes man bites dog yes
0: with, so he yeah, was Zach rocking Elton. things yeah. out
1: with his writing agent mm-hmm. and you know i had my performing career going but i said let's put this together mm-hmm. and we're going to do like a csi meets the monkeys you know and <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that petered out as well. Mm-hmm. It got into development and, you know, it, it was on a board somewhere. It was pegged to a uh, a cork board, but it, ultimately they, they they went against it. But what happens a few years later? Miles goes to work for Jimmy as his head writer, and then he... He tells Jimmy, "Hey, I got this friend who sings Barbershop," and Jimmy was like, "You know, I got an idea for that." <laughs> and Jimmy says, "I want I want to do hip hop as Barbershop." Mm-hmm. So it was Jimmy's idea. See, I never would have thought of that because to me, you don't need the hip hop. Like to right. me, just it's just like, Barbershop. Just, I mean, <laughs> for thirty years, I'm pitching Barbershop straight, okay? <laughs> and then Jimmy puts the hip hop on mm-hmm. it, and it's an overnight sensation. And a celebrity, nonsense. and a yeah. celebrity guest. Exactly. Yeah, that helps too. A celebrity fifth for the. Part. Um, but the funny thing and, is, that's the combination, the brilli- mm-hmm. the thing that when they hear uh, Jason Derulo as Barbershop, the country goes crazy. I thought they should just go crazy to hear <laughs> Sweet Adeline, but they, they wouldn't. Well, See, that's, you know, that's my blind spot. Well, you were close, though, because the Pitch Perfect movies yes. have,
0: yeah. have been boffo at the box office. Abs- you know what? Acapella. You're right.
1: You're right.
0: So, I
1: was ahead of
0: my time. Maybe it's just the Barbershop. Co- maybe it's just a, a, anti-male. It, I think it is. That's it. <laughs> You're right. Um, was the Fox News a similar thing where you just kind of fell into it? Well, or? I love
1: it. Listen, I love uh, Fox News, and I I loved Red Eye. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I don't watch Fox News all day, but I used to watch. I used to you know come in, tune in the mm-hmm. primetime shows, and I liked it. I loved their style. I thought it, you know it it was it was great. But I was I was a channel flipper. But then there was the show that wanted to have me on Red Eye. Right. I went on it. I was on it once. Yeah, that's right. One, the the one. Um, I'm one of the one and dones. You, but you're a part of a proud group of people. (laughs) You know, there should. You know what? People talk about having a red eye convention. There should Mm -hmm. be people who were on once red eye convention (laughs) because it's a huge group of people. Well, it's
0: such an outlier for the Fox News programming. You Just have this show at two, three in the morning. That's so fun. Got
1: comedians and Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, who I uh, who I knew well and I loved, and he introduced me to Greg, Mm -hmm. and I just loved their style. I loved their their rebel, their kind of conservative rebel style. I thought it was great, and the show mm-hmm. was funny, and it was it was really uncensored and really outrageous. I mean, the things that would go on on Red Eye, forget about Fox News, they were very outrageous for cable. You know what I mean? They were it, to me. It was the original. It was like a comedy podcast. It was a comedy news podcast, mm-hmm. and now they're everywhere. But right. I feel like Red Eye was that. So I, it was so great to hang out there, and then uh, and they liked me over at Fox. They said this guy's fun. He's funny. We like his. um his 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 point of view, like uh, they liked my f- the way I put humor into issues because that's you know it, it's kind of I think rare over there for people who you know take a humorous approach and Greg was that way as well. So they started using me on the channel uh, in in various ways. And then one day I said to Greg, you know, I would mind a shot at at hosting when you're off someday. And he said, yeah, sh- certainly. So I went in and did that. And I wanted, you know, I said, hey, look, this is me hosting Red Eye. And they said, you know, we like that. And I right. said, look, I could do a show too, you know, maybe. So I'm trying to pitch them my own show. But then when Greg left Red Eye, it was a perfect opportunity for me to to take that on. And I say right-wing talk show host because it's, as a joke, because it's this, I am conservative, right? Mm-hmm. I love talking about the issues. But obviously, I'm not really a right-wing talk show host. I'm, right. Like I say in the book that I, I tend to, I, I never get into deep policy discussions, but I like to, uh, I like the, uh, I like talking about issues in a light way and, and it's like, it's so hard to right. do it now.
0: Right, because it's not the same, the way you talk about it is not the same way that Sean Hannity talks about it. No, or very Rush different. Limbaugh.
1: Even though, but I love Sean. Like, I love that show and I like being a guest on his show uh, and Tucker, I mean, he's got his own uh, angle on things mm-hmm. but I think he's very, he's like, he's so intellectual and it's it's really fun and everything. So I love everything over there. I love doing the shows and now I'm doing radio for Fox News and I've been filling in over there and that's been a blast. So, um, I love it. I love doing issues and it's more important now than ever. I just did uh Nagin Farsad's show the mm-hmm. um uh, Fake the Nation. Everyone's so serious now. You know what I mean? Like even like the fans, they only want you to talk about issues in a in a a Rachel Maddow kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, it's so, you know, uh, she's obviously talented. She's good at what she does. But I like I don't like taking things so seriously we still can everyone thinks like now's the oh joking was for the old days right now it's serious and it's like it's not really it really isn't it's still funny guys it's still funny <laughs> well we we still have covfefe <laughs>
0: exactly um how could i have red eye look i said last how night how can
1: you seriously talk about covfefe <laughs> it's no wonder red eye was canceled the world is red eye now like people were like oh this this story mm-hmm. would have been great for red eye no no this story's on every show Like you tune into cable news now and you're talking about Kofevi. Like Mm -hmm. that used to be our story. Now it's everyone's (laughs) story. So no wonder there's no room for me in this world. So let's let's
0: bring this on home and um, back to mean dads because you're a dad. I'm a dad. Um, I doubt you're a mean dad, but you might be. I'm trying, yes, I'm a mean dad. I'm the meanest dad in my building. So if your kids uh, come to you when they get older and decide they want to go into the show business or into comedy specifically, what are you? T- what are you going to tell them?
1: Or have they already said this to you? No, this is. The, but they haven't said this to me. But every interviewer asks me this. Right. I was just on with Fatherly, the Fatherly mm-hmm. website, and they were like, they asked that very question, and I said, no, I'm going to discourage them. I think it's a terrible profession. Uh, I don't think they should go into it. And I, the thing is, I unfortunately, I'm in the position of saying, do not do what I did. You know what I mean? I, right. I put everything on the line. I did ha- not have a backup. I moved to New York. Without having graduated college, uh, no skills b- beyond uh, my wily ways—you know, b- uh, but like essentially my my God-given charm—that's all I had. That's not good. That's not a good skill. <laughs> but it, you know, it got me through. Mm-hmm. And you know, ten years of miserable uh, living in, in relative poverty. Mm-hmm. To you know, in, in the Western world, I was uh, considered living in poverty. But the you know, it did all pay off. But right. my we do have a happy ending. It's a happy ending. But my message is not follow your dreams. You know what I mean? I'm like Mike Rowe. I'm like, don't follow your dreams. Learn how to use a drill press, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> or how about computers? Yes. Like your dad. Yes. A skill <laughs> and, that you can make money off of. Because you know what? It's not that I love what I do, but I could do it as a hobby too. If I had taken the other choice, if I had learned how to work uh, computers or I was a coder, and then I, I did this as a hobby, you know, I could have cut 12 comedy albums on, on my own in my spare time you know um so you can be an artist part-time you know there's that's that is glory Uh, my mother did it she was an artist she took care of five kids and she was a painter and she would go to the 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 shows you know where the housewives would go and sell their paintings and people look at that and they say oh those are housewives who sell paintings no those are artists they did paintings you know so i i uh i would say to my kids always do art you know they're doing theater now mm-hmm. doing children's theater up in riverdale they got a great theater company up there and they're uh they're doing playing the violin my daughter's playing the guitar nice. they so it's like art keep doing art keep being creative but you know you don't have to make a living at it it's not that important i mean showbiz it's not you know it's a, it's a bunch of knuckleheads
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you can learn more about that in Tom tom's new book mean dads for a better america beautiful father of the advice tom thank you so much Thank you, Sean. <laughs> first. This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O'McCarthy. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.